On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Ken Keithley about Molinism. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is Molinism? What's the historical pedigree of Molinism? Who are the key proponents of Molinism? Why would someone want to affirm Molinism? What are the costs and benefits of Molinism? How does it fit with libertarian free will? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can just up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we talk about serious thinking, we don't just mean like grim studying and reading under candlelight. We mean serious about the intellectual virtues such as charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and for us, a cheerful form of confessionalism. I realize not everybody who listens to our podcast is confessional, but we think you should be because I think you'll benefit. Uh, your ministry will benefit. Your own thinking will benefit. But we'll leave that to the side. I'm not here to convince you to be confessional yet. You can listen if you're not. But we want to encourage these sort of virtues of like we think really hard, but we do it with a a, a posture that is that is mirroring what James 3 tells us of this wisdom that is from above, that is full of curiosity, or I guess he doesn't say curiosity, but full of being open to reason, being gentle, being kind, those sort of things is what we want to model. But that doesn't mean that you don't get to ask hard questions or to be really rigorous in your thinking. We think these things go together. That's what the model Christian thinker should be. Now, with that said, I am super excited to introduce you to somebody who I think models these things really well is Dr. Ken Keithley. So I personally know Dr. Keithley in live and in the flesh a lot of our guests, I don't know live and in the flesh, but I have had the utter delight and honor to get to know Dr. Keithley over the last year as I've been a research fellow for the Center for Faith and Culture. So he leads this Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Seminary. And I'll tell you two things. Number one, the Center for Faith and Culture is awesome. So if you don't know about it, you need to go check it out. A lot of our listeners are political nerd sort of stuff, like they like cultural sort of things. I think the Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern is doing a superb job. So it's not doing hot takes. It's not doing stuff that's just like causing a bunch of heat. They do really interesting, careful analysis of all sorts of questions related to those sort of things that I think a lot of our listeners are interested in. And number two, Dr. Keithley himself. I mean, he has modeled the, the virtues that we really want to pursue here. I think he's just awesome in all in all senses of the word. So, and I've been able to see him up front, close personal, see him interact with other thinkers. So, if you don't know Dr. Keithley, go follow his work. He's doing awesome stuff. Now, we are going to talk about Molinism. I'm not a Molinist, so this is going to be fun because uh, we disagree here. So, we get to model a little bit of this charity here. But I'm really just interested more in Molinism in general because I don't know. I honestly don't know all that much about it. I've read a little bit about Molinism. I mean, Greg Welty was one of my was my THM supervisor, and I know he's written. You guys have gone back and forth on some stuff on Molinism, so you know he would tell me about Molinism, and he'd make jokes or whatever because because so, you guys are friends. So I'm excited about this. So Dr. Keithley, before we jump in. I know I told everybody that you're involved with the Center for Faith and Culture, but give me a little bit more background on who you are. And then what made you, were you always a Molinist? Did you become a Molinist at some point? Like what, what, what happened there? Why did you decide that Molinism was the way forward? 
Uh, Jordan, thank you for having me on the program. I am, I'm looking around to find the person you just described. Uh, he's a great guy, whoever he is, but I, I'm the one you're stuck with. Um, uh, and so thank you for having me. I am Ken Keithley. I direct the Bush Center for Faith and Culture. Um, as you said, the, the, the Center for Faith and Culture is on the campus of Southeastern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary. We have both the podcast and the website called Christ and Culture. And uh, Benjamin Quinn uh, co-directs the center with me. We have a great staff. We do get to deal with all of the fascinating and interesting and some hot-button issues that really matter in the, in, in, in the life of the church. So we deal with everything from faith and science, uh, faith-working economics, uh, faith and film and the arts, um, faith in the public square. The, what we really are trying to do at Southeastern, uh, and the Bush Center in particular, is equip uh, our students who are going to be future pastors, uh, missionaries, uh, church staff people, so that they are able to um, involve themselves and engage themselves in whatever arena they find themselves are, and, and more specifically, how to minister to a congregation that whatever that congregation may look like. It may be a congregation made up of business types, our, our engineering types, or you could just think of all the various uh, constituencies you can have in a congregation. Uh, you really do need to be able to, to, to think well. Uh, and, and I'm not the first, you know, first person to say this, you need to be able to exegete the culture as well as you can scripture, which, um, we're all working at that. Um, I am, as you said, a Molinist. No, that doesn't mean I have a skin disease. It sounds like it, but that's not what it means. Um, uh, so, yes, I arrived at Molinism, uh, interestingly enough, by way of what I would call infralapsarian Calvinism. And so that is why in the spectrum of Molinism, there's there's a, you know, almost within every uh, camp or our theological perspective, there's a spectrum within it. And so I'm considered one of the more Calvinistic Molinists, in contrast to someone like William Lane Craig. Well, let's begin with a, a brief sketch of Molinism. Um, let's try to lay this out as as plainly as it can possibly be laid out for somebody who doesn't know uh, anything about this topic at all, maybe just two or three minutes. And then after that, we can get into um, maybe the spectrum of the different views within that camp. Yeah, because while we have nerds who listen, well, maybe, Brandon, maybe your grandma is a nerd, but I just think she's our most loyal listener. She so is, I am yeah. guessing that she doesn't she has, know anything about Molinism. Yeah, she's so. never heard the term. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, Molinism. Uh, is generally understood to be a position that exists somewhere in between uh, what is traditionally uh, described as Calvinism or Arminianism. And of course, those terms, they become anachronistic in a hurry, but for, for starting labels, let's do that. Um, and uh, so, so Molinism has a Calvinistic understanding of God's sovereignty, uh, it also has a fairly Arminian understanding of human agency. And so you say, well, how does, how does Molinism arrive at that? And uh, the way I describe it is I say that Molinism is the position that God is able to achieve his will with precision and success um, in the lives of genuinely free creatures, primarily by means of his omniscience. 
so I know there are, there are three different kinds of, of knowledge that God has on the Molinist scheme. Can you help us understand what those three types of knowledge are? Molinism uh, is the attempt to understand uh, God's uh, knowledge in a series of moments. And in the moment we say uh, that, um, people's eyes glaze over and they think, okay, we've left the Bible and now we're starting to talk about philosophy. But I just want to point out that all theological systems that try to understand how God works in the world does so through a series of logical moments. And this is true especially of Calvinism, in which Calvinism tries to understand how God works in the world through a moment, through the logical moments of God's will. Uh, if you're infralapsarian or superlapsarian, that's what it means. Uh, you know, the first decree and then the logical moment of the second and third and fourth. Same is true with Arminian, uh, Arminianism, whether it's supra, infra, sublapsarian. These are all logical moments. So instead of trying to understand the moments of God's will, Molinism is trying to understand the moments of God's knowledge. And like I said, again, uh, just about every uh, theological system, whether it's Calvinism or Thomism, they understand that there are certain aspects to God's knowledge. Certain things are true due to God's nature, and other things are true due to God's will. Um, before God ordained to create, there were certain things that were true just because God is God. Uh, certain things about truth, uh, goodness, and beauty— those things are true due to who God is, and therefore they are necessarily true. Um, and so this is what's known as natural knowledge. It's due to God's nature. God ordained to create, uh, and he created this world. Now, did he have to create this world? I'm someone who argues very strongly that he did not. He could have refrained from creating at all and would have been just as glorious uh, and had would have uh, enjoyed all of his excellencies in a maximal way. Uh, he would have. Uh, he he was not lonely. He was a perfect fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So so uh, God did not have to create at all. Didn't have to create this world. So this world is uh, the result of God freely choosing, and that's why uh, this is known as God's free knowledge. Uh, the world that he created. He knows everything about it. He knows it exhaustively. So there's at least two moments that everyone agrees. There is the natural knowledge that God has, and then there's the free knowledge. Now, here's the question, and it's the question of the hour. Can God create people, our, uh, any kind of creature, angels are humans, who have... Um, what we would describe as a libertarian form of freedom. That is, they are able to be the originators of decisions, and they are able to choose to the contrary. Uh, uh, is God able to do that? Now, it could be, there's some, and there's many who say, no, it, it, it just logically cannot happen. All things are by necessity, um, issue over, and, and, and I would say, okay, we've got a, a, a whole different set of problems here. If everything is by necessity, then then how are we not fatalist? Uh, but since I do believe that God could have refrained from creating, uh, but he chose to create, this means I, I don't think the world is necessary. This, therefore, the world's contingent. So contingency is a thing. It's, it's, it's a very real aspect of reality. Now, can God create creatures uh, in which consent, contingency is true about them? 
Uh, and I would argue, yes. Uh, and and that's, that's what I'm arguing. Well, then that brings up the question, can God know what they're going to do? Uh, open theists say no. If, if God creates those kinds of creatures who, who have the ability to genuinely be the originators uh, of, of decisions uh, and are able to do so in a way in which they had the ability to choose otherwise, there's no way God could know that uh, or know it exhaustively. Uh, so therefore, an open theist would say, no, God can't do that uh, and, uh, it, it, and know what they're going to do exhaustively. Or you have the hard determinists say, well, it's not even possible for him to do it at all. But for those of us who say, yes, it is possible, then we'd say, it is, God, it is possible for God to know exhaustively what genuinely free creatures would do. Okay, is this natural knowledge? Is it, is, is it necessary truths uh, due to his nature? No, it doesn't belong to that. Um, is it free, part of his free knowledge? In other words, uh, well, part of it is, but there's all kinds of counterfactual things that never come to pass in this world, and God knows that. So somehow this knowledge of, of all of the possible choices that genuinely free creatures can make we would say logically it resides somewhere in between God's natural knowledge and God's free knowledge. And there's where the term middle knowledge comes from. It is the set of all the subjunctive uh, conditionals, of all of the things, all of the possible decisions that a genuinely free creature could make. Now, that was a long that was a much longer uh, uh, answer than I was planning on giving, and I probably lost your audience about two-thirds of the way through, but that's it. There is uh, God's natural knowledge, his middle knowledge, and his free knowledge, because as a Molinist, we do believe that God possesses, ex possesses exhaustive foreknowledge of all future mm. contingencies. Yeah. So that makes sense. So basically, I guess the the difference is, is there between somebody who's more Calvinistic and someone who wants to, I guess, superlapsarian sort of Calvinistic? Um, well, actually, <laughs> there's a lot of Calvinists who like, uh, either, uh, e some of them will go ahead and, and say some type of middle knowledge Calvinism, which I, th yeah. I always find that just a little challenging. Um or they'll go ahead and bite the bullet like Oliver Crisp and will say, no, I believe in libertarian freedom, maybe for everything besides conversion, but they believe in that, that especially when it comes to uh, free acts of evil, they want to argue for some type of libertarian understanding. So I'm, I'm not sure that I always feel comfortable, and I did this too, uh, Jordan, you know, Calvinism versus Arminianism. But Molinism is really pushing back against any type of fatalism, or all things are of necessity. And most Calvinists I know want to have some kind of, of, of uh, genuine understanding of freedom or liberty in those areas also. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And bringing up somebody like Oliver Crisp, I think that's a great example. I think Richard Moeller, I remember reading his, he's what, I don't remember the title, something like Divine Will and Human Choice or something like that, yeah. where he's sketching out these sort of different streams in the Reformed tradition to think about free will. And I remember reading that and thinking, wow, I thought I knew what I, the Reformed tradition said on this, and now I have no idea. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you have to, yeah, you have to remember that there is a big difference between a superlapsarian and a causal determinist. Uh you know, when we're talking about uh, issues of 
of uh, necessity and contingency, we're talking about logic. When we're talking about determinism, and especially causal determinism, we're talking about cause and effect. And it's possible, as many of the post-Reformation scholastics were, as Richard Muller and Alan Guelzo and others point out, there were a great number of, of post-Reformation Calvinists who were dead set against causal determinism, which is why many of the continental Calvinists did not like um, Jonathan Edwards' uh, freedom of the will, because they felt like that he, he uh, embraced uh, a... a uh, a Hobbesian understanding of causal determinism that made them very nervous. Yeah, no, I, I've definitely heard that critique of Edwards that he ends up becoming uh, too hard of a determinist. <laughs> now, what are the reasons that people want to reject middle knowledge? What's, I mean, maybe are there reasons that, or maybe they don't. I don't know. Somebody who's more. Um, I guess, op an open theist. Would they reject middle knowledge and then uh, a more hardcore sort of Calvinist? The one that wants to reject middle knowledge, what's the reason for them wanting to do that? Are they the same reason, different reasons? Yeah. Uh, well, there's, <laughs> it, this, is a, this is quite a robust discussion. So there's a, there's a list of reasons. But I just gave you the one that typically an open theist, and, and I always find it uh, interesting or amusing whenever uh, someone accuses Molinism of being some type of, of, of some version of open theism, then I realize they really don't understand it because the, some of the strongest opponents of Molinism have been open theists like William Hasker uh, would be a good example. Um, and typically, if Molinism is true, then there's no reason to, to, to hold to open theism because um, the open theist typically is trying to have a way in which God can genuinely relate to free creatures without a way that renders everything necessary. Uh, and they, so, so therefore they embrace something that looks like open theism. Um, for the, for the, those on the more fatalistic side, uh, deterministic side, um, there are those who will argue that all things happen by necessity. Uh, and for example, and this is due to God's uh, exhaustive omniscience. If God knows you're going to mow your lawn this Saturday, um, it, then of necessity that must happen. So therefore, they would argue that God's foreknowledge, that it, the fact that it is, it is uh, perfect and immutable, thus renders uh, all things uh, to to be necessary. So really, Molinism. Uh, started out historically. Uh, it, it, it historically was intended to address the issue of God's foreknowledge of subjunctive conditionals uh, and God's foreknowledge of contingent future events. Uh, and Molina was trying to have a way in which God can know what's going to happen Saturday, but it's not, it's not all rendered uh, fatalistically necessary. So that was the, that was the goal from the beginning. Uh, so <clears throat> you have a, a someone like uh, uh, R. McGregor Wright on the on the far right, or Martin Luther, uh, or even Zwingli, who they who really were pretty staunch uh, uh, fatalist in many ways. That was that was the push against uh, the the Catholic uh, uh, counter reformers. 
they made hay out of the positions of Luther and Zwingli. A lot of people forget that the reason why Calvin's position on God's sovereignty and predestination more or less won the day of the original reformers is because his was the least stringent. Uh, he he was not as extreme as as uh, Luther and and are as as Zwingli. So um, there is on the far right. Uh, those who would argue all things are of necessity, uh, and those on the far left who would say that, um, well, the, those on the far right are right. If God exhaustively foreknows, then it's all of necessity. Therefore, God doesn't know. And so you have the two extremes. Most of us, whether it is um, you know, an infilapsarian Calvinist or a Thomist, are a, a classic Arminian, are a Molinist. All of us are trying to somehow hold that it is true that God exhaustively foreknows and ha, uh, and and enjoys uh, uh, supreme sovereignty over all of creation. And yet, we're not puppets on a string. Uh, our choices really do belong to us, and and we uh, are are real agents in the world. Uh, making a difference. So uh, it is those two powerful, uh, well, I would say biblical truths and intuitions that we're trying to hold simultaneously. So uh, my discussion with my infilapsarian Calvinist and my conservative Arminians, I consider this a a vigorous debate over at the dinner table among brethren. Maybe you can walk us through some of uh, the objections to Molinism that you've run across. So I know Jordan mentioned Dr. Welty um, at the beginning of of the episode. He has the the Molinist gunslinger objection, and then there's also the grounding objection. Maybe let's just uh, start with Welty's at first. What what is his primary objection, and then how would you respond to it? Yeah, Brandon. Let's, if you don't mind, let's take one step back from that, or else we we won't understand his objection. Uh, Luis Molina uh, was a Jesuit priest uh, uh, during the Counter-Reformation, and he is the one who presented the model uh, uh, of, of what we, today we call Molinism, where he utilizes the notion of middle knowledge. The first real uh, opponents to Molinism were the Thomists. Uh, and so the first big discussion is how is it that there can be three moments to God's knowledge and that be reconciled with a Thomistic understanding of divine simplicity? And so there was a really knockdown drag out uh, of a fight uh, among the Dominicans who held to the Thomistic view and the Jesuits who argued for a, uh, a Molinist view. Um, one of the fascinating things that happened in the Catholic Church um, is that it was it, the debate came to a draw, and it was one of those instances where one of the few times where the Pope called a tie or jump ball and said, uh, within the Catholic Church, it's possible for both Thomism and Molinism to be held, uh, and be within the Catholic Church, to be within the Orthodox faith, which is amazing. I mean, you know, uh, 
there were times that Molina thought, well, okay, I'm going to end up being burned at the stake. Um, and, and, and he, he died not, you know, when he died, he really didn't know how his view was going to, uh, end up. Uh, and in fact, that's one of the reasons why less than 20% of Molina's writings have been published in English because he wrote in such an obtuse, difficult way. And the reason he did that is because he wanted, I mean, there's, you can have a page where it's almost all one sentence, where he has all kinds of conditional uh, parts of the sentence, make, trying to make sure that he's covered all his bases and, and somebody doesn't use that on Twitter or Facebook and, and slams him to where he suddenly is brought up on heresy charges. And I'm, you know, you get the idea. In other words, back then there were people looking for, uh, the, the hot take that they could only the hot take back then was literal. Uh, and so that was the first, um, uh, so that was the first discussion on is Molinism compatible with a classical understanding of theology proper, and the and the and the conclusion was yes, uh, it, it is, uh, and so so you have where um, Molinism then kind of faded among Catholics because Thomism really dominated up through uh, the 19th and 20th centuries. Almost all of the the major Catholic theologians were were Thomistic theologians. So then in the 1960s and 70s, you have where um, Alvin Plantinga is, is addressing the problem of evil. And as he's writing on this, he comes up with a hypothetical scenario in which he says, well, it's possible. And he goes through these three moments of God's knowledge. And, and as he publishes that, someone says, well, you're a Molinist. And he said, well, what's that? Uh, and so... Uh, the reason why Molinism uh, has experienced a resurgence in the last 50 years is because of the uh, the rediscovery of Molinism by Alvin Plantinga, and then among evangelicals. Well, of course, Plantinga is, is is it he was on the reform side, on the more Arminian side. Uh, Bill Craig uh, picked up the mantle. Um, now, <clears throat> so. The the uh, like I said so the first first uh, disagreement was among the Thomists versus the Molinists. The second one the the idea of the grounding objection is the question: What is the basis of 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 counterfactuals? What what what's the grounding? How what are they anchored in? Um, and uh, there you can find among uh, analytical philosophers and and. Now, now we're getting into a territory that I'm going to admit that that I, I hesitate to say much more here because I'm not an analytical philosopher. I am a theologian who uses Molinism rather than someone who's able to go toe-to-toe with an analytical philosopher about the grounding objection. If, if one really, really wants to get into the, into the weeds on this, there's a great book by... Uh, Ken Persick, or he's the editor of it, uh, in which uh, you have some of the best arguments for and against the grounding objection. the The point is, is, is how is it that God knows what what uh, there's a there's a particular truth maker theory that is employed uh, to bring up the grounding objection. Now, someone like William Lane Craig will respond saying, "Well, even that that model of truth makers." 
is is not exactly uh, it's questionable in of itself. The way I respond to the ground uh, to the grounding objection is is you ask me how it is that God can um, exhaustively know what genuinely free creatures are going to do, and the answer is I don't have a clue. Um, Molina argued for what comes to be known as super comprehension, maybe. But that doesn't really bother me that I can't tell you how it is that God does something. Uh, we are talking about an attribute of God, omniscience. Uh, you might as well be asking me how it is that God is omnipotent. Uh, or uh, how, is he, how is it that he's omnipresent? I might be able to describe it with a certain level of, of nuance and care, but explaining how it works, I don't, I don't even begin to have a clue. So I, it doesn't keep me up at night that I can't answer the grounding objection. Uh, and, and I think among philosophers, there's a general agreement that it's that on this issue uh, also, they have boxed themselves into a draw. I mean, they're just, their arms are tired. They've said all they can say. And, and, and it and it looks like that one's kind of be kind of like the Thomist and the, uh, Molinist on, on the, on the doctrine of God, uh, that they're going to call it a draw and say, okay, this, this, at least we know where the disagreements are. So that would be the first two. Now, if we're going to get into the uh, Molinist gunslingers, that's going to take a little lo a bit longer. So you want to restate the question or do anything like that or how you want to do this? Uh, I don't I don't have anything specific to add. So this um, other than to say that just to reiterate that this objection, um, if I'm understanding correctly, originated from Greg Welty. Yeah. And I think you guys have gone back and forth uh, in print on this. So. You would definitely be the the Molinist to ask specifically about this objection, I would think. Yeah. So basically, what um, and 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 I think Greg would uh, would agree with this that this objection really doesn't get to the major point of Molinism. He's simply answering or or pushing back at one particular claim of Molinism, that is that Molinism is superior when it comes to the matter of the problem of evil. Uh, in that, um, Molinism does not make God the author of sin the way that causal determinism does. Now, here's where I've, I've you know, where, where Greg and I have had a lot of fun because he says Molinists have been a little sloppy by saying that Calvinists uh, make God the author of sin with their adherence to their view of sovereignty. Uh, and... Uh, and he quotes me, and and in in his in his original uh, uh, thing, and I point out, uh, Greg, I make I'm very careful to point out that there's a lot of Calvinists who are who who say causal determinism makes God the author of sin. We don't hold to causal determinism, um, and so you have plenty of Calvinists that it, I could go down the line of of those who who understand. Uh, the the philosophical difficulties of adhering to causal determinism, um, and and then he sa even says he says well uh, if there are those within our camp that holds to uh, causal determinism, he just throws them under the bus. You know that's you know okay that that's that's the problem, um, but he says I'm not one of those or are for those of us who hold to an apophatic understanding. In other words, we leave it as a mystery. 
And of course I respond back and say, well, okay, then we don't have, a, we don't have an argument there because, um, I don't have, a, I don't have an argument with, uh, those who hold to an apophatic way, as long as you have mystery in the right place. Um, you know, there are, whenever we ask ourselves the question, why isn't God guilty, uh, of, of being the author of sin or the origin of evil? Um, we can, we can place, I mean, there's th- one of three places to put mystery. One is the mystery, why did God create a world in which evil was possible? I mean, why did he create this world? Why didn't he create a world in which there was no such thing as free will, and therefore there was never going to be any such thing as sin? I mean, most of the universe doesn't have free will. The solar systems, uh, the planets, the stars, they all just obey the laws of nature. There's no free will there. It's all beautiful. We could have just done like that, just had plants and animals and gorgeous creation. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, so, so both the apophatic Calvinist and, and, and the Molinist would both say that's a mystery and, and, and no controversy there. Um, the second place that we could put mystery is how is it that God is able to accomplish his will so perfectly by, uh, by utilizing evil creatures? And we have plenty of examples in the Bible where God does exactly that. Isaiah chapter 10, where he, he uses the Assyrians to uh, judge Israel. Um, and he even likens them to an, to an axe in which he wields them in his hand. But then after the king of Assyria has done what he's done, he then turns around and judges the king of Assyria for, for his evil intent. Um, or the famous passage in Genesis uh, where Joseph is, uh, is speaking to his brothers and said, you meant this for evil, but God intended it for good. And, he, and it's very clear that Joseph believes his 20 years in captivity, uh, where, his son, where his brothers sold him in, as a slave, and you have the whole story there. He sees that as the hand of God. So, so th- there's plenty of biblical examples of God using evil people to accomplish his will. And of course, the ultimate example is the cross. It's, it's Jesus uh, dying for our sins. Uh, so how does God do that? And again, if you want to put mystery there and, and, and someone like J.I. Packer, uh, you know, he will hold to an antinomy position or D.A. Carson. Uh, they will say, I really don't know, uh, but I, I do know that God is able to do it. Uh, and, and Molinism presents a possible model. Well, again, we don't have any controversy there. So that's the second place you could put mystery. The third place is where I have a problem. And that is the idea that, yeah, God causally determines all things in a uh, event, 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 causal chain, just like a row of dominoes. And so God is the, the one who pushed the domino row over. Uh, and in that row of dominoes are a whole set of evil and horrendous things. Um, how is it that God is not the author of sin there? And there are some Calvinists who will go ahead and affirm causal determinism, and they'll say, I don't know how he's not the author of sin, even though logically it appears that he is. Well, some Calvinists go ahead and and, and say, well, uh, the reason God is not accountable is because he has no one to give an account to. He's just the biggest kid on the playground. Uh, and there's just 
no one else over him. So therefore, which I find horrific, just to be blunt, I find that one, that, that viewpoint very disturbing. And I'm thinking you're very, you're dangerously close to moving over to God as Allah. I mean, that would be the Islamic understanding of God's freedom uh, of, of the categories of good and evil. And it simply doesn't fit what the Bible says. The Bible, the great challenge to us in the Bible is knowing everything we know about God. Can you believe him when he says that he's as good as he says he is? Um, so uh, th- to put mystery there is a real problem for me uh, because... Uh, I think that 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 really is doing something that uh, most Reformed confessions say don't do. I mean, the Westminster Confession is very clear that God is not the author of sin or the origin of evil. The abstract of principles that guide uh, Southeastern Seminary and Southern Seminary and the Founders Conference says very clearly, God is not the author of, uh, of evil nor the origin of sin, uh, nor does he destroy um, the contingency and free will of, of creatures. So if one is going to put and, and that's where Greg puts the third area that you have. You remember the Mario Brothers where you have Bullet Bill, the the, the uh, bullet, and it's trying to kill whatever it is. The idea of the gunslinger uh, objection is the idea. Um, if someone hires a hitman, then it isn't just the hitman that's guilty of the murder. Uh, both, both, both the... The hitman and the person, you know, the husband that hired the guy to kill his wife, both of them are guilty. Um, that's the gunslinger objection in a nutshell. And I'm saying, and I, my answer is, um, that's not what Molinism believes. And I don't think that really that's what Greg believes about Calvinism, uh, that we think that that's merely what's going on. That's super helpful. Um, I appreciate you sketching that out, especially where to put the mystery and everything. That's that's a really helpful categorization, I think. Um, one thing I would love for you to spend a little bit of time on here as we get closer to the end of our time is just, I mean, you're a theologian, but you're also a pastor. So why is it that thinking about questions like this and doing philosophical and theological sort of work on this, like, what's the payoff for the pastor? when it comes to these sort of things? Why should they consider and spend time thinking about this? Yeah, that is a great question. And let's remember, Molina was a pastor. Uh, he, and and he, he, he was driven by pastoral concerns. First, it is uh, pastorally important that we do not see God as the author of sin, uh, that he is the origin of evil. Um, you know, Whenever we are ministering, I mean, think of uh, while we're recording this, there's been some national uh, tragedies. It's very important that we are able to say in a very real and profound way uh, that God is not the one who did this. Now, we struggle with the notion of permission, and we can talk about that also, but still, it is one thing— to struggle with why God allowed it. It's another thing to say that God did it. And so there, I think that's pastorally important. Let me just say, and this is, I don't mean to sound snarky, but it may come across this way, what I'm getting ready to say next. And I don't mean for it to be, but almost all good Calvinist pastors that I know want to sound like a Molinist 
at really important moments like when you're preaching the funeral of someone who, as far as we know, went out in eternity unprepared. And you're, you're having the, the, the relative saying, why did God send my loved one to hell? Uh, and I think that all of us want to say God genuinely desired the salvation of everyone, that there is a universal salvific desire. I think that that's something important. Second, you want to be able to say there was a well-meant offer. And this is one of the things that, that, uh, you know, that, 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 the, that your, your friend, your, your loved one, genuinely had the gospel available to them. It, I, I cannot, uh, I cannot relieve the grief or the, or the, or the, the feelings of remorse and regret. If someone, you know, as far as we know, has gone out into eternity unprepared, but it is an, it, it is an, a particular agony to think that God sent them there. And so uh, every good Calvinist I know at that moment, whenever he's dealing with the family, wants to be able to say, God loves all humans. God did not create the, anyone to send them to hell. That the, the, the salvation was genuinely available to that person. So, yeah, there's a lot of pastoral implications. Let me just take it one step further. And this is one of the problems we have. And this is, this is to me, is, is the great unaddressed thing. Uh, I, if I, for all of my Calvinist brethren who get hung up on the conversion experience, to me, that, that's really the, the minor point here. They, they miss the real point. If you hold to a hard version of determinism, and a monergistic understanding of God's grace, then pastorally, this becomes very difficult in the doctrine of sanctification of a believer. Um, do you really want to say to someone who's on the journey of faith that every sin they committed, they committed because God withheld sufficient grace for them to overcome that temptation, and that God secretly ordained that they would do the evil that whatever evil are, are places they stumble. I mean, do you want to be uh, counseling the fellow who is having the affair with the coworker uh, and say, and, and, and hold to a version? Well, actually it was secretly God's will for you to do this. And the, the, yeah, even though the Bible told you not to do it, he didn't give you the grace to where every Calvinist I know, None of them would say that, and, and, and rightly so. They would, uh, they would affirm 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation taking you, which is common to man. And so every good Calvinist I know when it comes to the doctrine of sanctification suddenly become good synergists. Um, and, and they would say, everything we do right, uh, God gets the credit. When we do wrong, we get the blame. I think we all want to, to have a an understanding of how God works in our lives. So the Molinist system really does fit very well with that. In that, uh, I mean, one doesn't have to follow Molinism. One can go ahead and be a, an infilapsarian Calvinist where they have those tensions. But I think those tensions are there. 
uh, and on the, th- the issue of God's universal salvific will, on the genuine offer of the gospel, on the, the ability, libertarian ability to do the otherwise for a Christian in the moment of temptation, those are all really serious pastoral issues. I have a, I have a question. I'll just make sure I'm understanding. So um, would the Molinist have to answer a similar question there because— God chose to actualize one world over another. So, for instance, God has he has access to all of this middle knowledge. He knows all of these counterfactuals of what this person would do in this given situation. And God chose to actualize a world where um, the person commits the sin, um, but he could have actualized a world where the person chose to not sin in that situation. Or we could just say they're saved in one world or not saved in the other. So doesn't the Molinist have to answer a similar objection? That's a great question, uh, Brandon. And it, that's one of the... Uh, uh, I do think that Molinism has certain advantages there in that, uh, number one, I go back to the first mystery that we said, you know, the mystery of why God ordained this world in which evil is possible, uh, even though he knew perfectly well uh, that... Uh, this, this possibility was going to be actualized by us and and why God created this particular world why why you know the problem of evil in that sense I don't have an answer nobody does uh, you know that that's that's a great mystery in which we will trust God and he's told us we're going to have to trust him on that one and and, and we do but to go to your to the more important point and this goes back to the gunslinger thing and that is there is a real difference between certainty and necessity. And I think that that has moral implications. In other words, uh, the fact that God has actualized a world that after the the rooster crowed three times, uh, Peter is going to deny the Lord three times. Um, That the fact that Jesus knew of a certainty that this would happen did not render it necessary. And therefore, there is a level of culpability uh, that um, Peter has in the Molinist scenario that's much more difficult to 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 hold to in uh, or understand in a causally determined scenario, um, and then in and and to 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 make my point a little stronger, uh, even most Calvinists I know Augustine argued this, they would argue that Adam had both the ability to sin and to not sin. Uh, in the garden. Well, by definition, that's a libertarian understanding of of Adam. If Adam had the ability to do and not do, yet let's remember, God's the one that placed him in the garden, and God is the one who placed the trees in the garden. So why did God place the trees in the garden? I don't know. But we do know whose fault it was whenever uh, Eve and Adam uh, disobeyed God. Uh, uh, And so, and let me just say, um, here's an example of where uh, some really hardcore determinists really mess up. Take a look, compare what um, R.C. Sproul Jr. wrote in contrast to his dad, R.C. Sproul Sr. When uh, Sproul Sr. was much more careful whenever he uh, asked the question, why is it that Adam sinned? 
you know, even though he held to an Edwardsian uh, understanding of determinism, that we always do whatever is our greatest inclination. Uh, and he said, I don't have an answer. He just left that as a mystery. Well, I appreciate Sproul Sr. doing that. Sproul Jr. doesn't. Uh, he blames God. Uh, he's, he says right up front. And I, you know, uh, he says, you know, was it Eve? No. Uh, was it Adam? No. Was it the serpent? No. No, he said God secretly changed uh, Eve's inclinations so that of necessity she did what she did. And he said, I'm not saying that God sinned. It's impossible for God to sin. I am saying, and he said, that God created sin. And that's a direct quote. So um, I do think that here's where Molinism does have a real advantage over causal determinism. And again, I want to distinguish between causal determinism and uh, Calvinism or Reformed theology as a whole, because causal determinism and the, those who would hold to causal determinism, they're only a slice within Reformed theology. And I think uh, for most of those within the Reformed camp, they would agree pretty much with everything else that I just said. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. So we could probably chat for another hour about all these things and it would be a lot of fun um and i know there's probably all sorts of objections or different things that people are oh man i am going to they're fighting over crayons okay <laughs> god ordained that uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's okay, buddy. so i am going to record and I, I guess I was just going to close up the episode and say thanks for listening. It was a good time. I'm going to record that at a later time since I have this little kid who's crying. This is I think you ought to leave it. I think that's great. Hey, Ezra. <laughs> he is unhappy. Yeah. yeah. He just woke up from his nap. So did God ordain it or did God permit it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, thanks, All right. thanks for having this talk. I mean, this was a lot of fun. So I, I really yeah, that was a really great this. time. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you guys. Y'all take care. God awesome. bless. We'll talk. And yeah, here I am back after the fact, letting you know that this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. And we always enjoy you for listening, even when things go haywire a little bit. Thanks for hanging out. It's always a pleasure to talk with you guys. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.